This is Docs in the Box podcast. A podcast about medicine, muscles, and more through the eyes of two physiatrists. I'm Dr. Amy West. And I'm Dr. Matthew Cowling. All right, Docs in the Box podcast, episode 29. We've got uh, Dr. Kyle Gillette. He's double board certified in family medicine and obesity medicine, and um, he is the owner of Gillette Health. Um, and he's one of the kind of original guys that I found out about uh, that's uh, in kind of the hormone replacement and men's health space. So welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I guess we'll get started um, hearing a little bit about your background because, uh, you know, you went to med school and now you, you're you sort of doing maybe a somewhat non-traditional of family medicine practice or primary care practice. So how did you how did you end up doing what you're doing now and how did you sort of educate yourself or were there certain uh, types of uh, certifications that you sought out to help you do the kind of medicine that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I've always been very interested and always known that I was going to do kind of like full spectrum or holistic medicine. I was homeschooled and my father's also a full spectrum family practice doctor. Uh, Many people in the Midwest are familiar that Family docs still do vasectomies and deliver babies and um, do endoscopy and a lot of things that um, not many general practitioners or family medicine physicians still do. And I also saw that I'm a Christian and I believe in God. And I think that uh, caring for the soul as part of the body, the mind and the soul is very important. So um, even when I was kind of like 12, I know, yep, I want to do high quality. I thought of concierge medicine at the time, but there really wasn't a term for like individualized medicine. And I've tailored my education to um, kind of design that in. So that's why I got the obesity medicine um, board certification. And that's why when I do CME, I, I like to target things that are common, that the demand for care exceeds the supply. And plus it's just part of taking uh, good care of a patient is practicing good evidence-based medicine across the spectrum. And um, those are very common things. Hormone pathology, for example, menopause or suboptimal levels of testosterone and uh, metabolic syndrome and obesity is also very common. So that's why I sought those things out. And I want to be very good at the things that are the most difficult and those can be two of the most difficult things to care for. Are there certain um groups or certain uh, educational platforms that you use that you find address these topics particularly well? Um, I don't think there's one specific group that addresses, I guess I'll just call it holistic medicine for lack of a better term. Um, The learning is very self-directed. It kind of reminds me um, more of med school and residency, you get out of it what you put into it. You know, you can always study and cram for the tests and whatnot, but that's more of a temporary thing. Whereas whatever you're truly interested in, digging into it with as much depth as possible and breadth as well, um, you're going to retain that better, especially if you continue to practice more full spectrum medicine. So if you get away from it, it can be more difficult to add that back in. I don't think that there's like one specific group. A lot of people ask me if I've done um, functional medicine and I haven't not done anything with the IFM. I've been to one A4M conference. 
there's certainly a difference. There's almost like a dichotomy between alternative medicine and conventional medicine where you're practicing, um, you know, this is conventional and then a practitioner will turn off his or her brain and then practice functional medicine on the side. Whereas I see the two really all together. And if you think about the pyramid of evidence-based medicine with systematic reviews and meta-analyses at the top, and then you have um, randomized controlled trials, um, then you have uh, retrospective and prospective cohort studies, case controls, and then at the very bottom, um, like I guess non-human studies, and then expert opinion. So when you're thinking about that, you, I still approach each patient in a conventional way. For example, for uh, endocrine dysfunction, looking at what the AACE says about it, and especially the studies that they link as part of their expert recommendation, or like what the USPTF says, or even what Healthy People 2030, I, for the record, I think Healthy People 2030 is a fantastic goal setting. Um, it's just kind of difficult to get there. So I think a lot of these sides agree, but it's just a matter of actually doing it and um, being able to take all that information and approach each patient as a unique individual, like everybody is, is the difficult part. Did you always know that you were going to start your own business? Was that always the plan or did that just kind of happen? Um, I actually thought that I was going to join my dad's business. My dad was one of the first um, physicians at his faith-based group in Kansas City. They have maybe a dozen offices and they were independent until maybe five or 10 years ago when they were bought by a very large hospital chain. Um, they have a, a missions fund and they have a FUHC that I used to volunteer at often, a safety net clinic. And um, I actually was the medical director for their functional medicine clinic for a while. And I always kind of thought that um, I would start practice there and retire there as well. My dad's worked there over 30 years. And for many reasons um, that has not worked out, largely just due to the fact that practicing individualized medicine within a traditional clinic setup uh, is very difficult. I do take all insurances. I just don't bill uh, level three and level four office visits. So there's no copay. Um, and I do prior offs if necessary for imaging, uh, even uh, for medications. And I run labs through insurance where it's beneficial to the patient. So it's really patient centered, but an approach where you are not paid anything for longitudinal messaging and care of the patient is not optimal for the care of the patient and you charge them, you're essentially making them come for a visit because that's the only way you get paid. And if you don't get paid, you can't feed your family. So I get it. Um, but I guess, fortunately, I've been blessed to where I have left the system. And, um, but no, it was definitely not expected. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because the way that you have it set up and the way a lot of um, physicians are going that are doing sort of a non-traditional approach it makes it so much better for the patient. People don't realize that you can use both sort of that cash model and then you can also use some stuff through like insurance benefits and things like that to make it easier. Um, so since we have you here, I really wanna focus on some of the things you've been most known for, particularly, I know Amy and I have some other questions, but some of the endocrine stuff, because in our particular, um, you know, a group of listeners and in I think all the gyms and health space in general, there's been this giant boom in testosterone replacement therapy. 
And when I was in medical school and undergrad, I remember there was this little book by Dr. John Chrysler, who is a guy from Michigan, right? And he had like the website, I think it was called All Things Male. And that was like the only TRT thing at the time. And now it's like everywhere, right? Um, and you're kind of doing a thing where you use a lot of evidence-based um, methodology, as we talked about, and that contrast to some of the places that are sort of just like pushing out hormones and everybody wants to be on TRT right now or learn more about it. So one question I have for you is, this is something I'm noticing more and more, you know, younger men on TRT. And you'll see a reason that people will say, you know, if you're training all day or you're chronically dieting, then your testosterone levels are going to fluctuate and drop into that lower range. And so if you go on TRT as a younger man, optimizing your testosterone can have several health benefits. Would you agree or disagree with the use of testosterone replacement for people who are like chronically dieting or overtraining? In general, I would disagree if there's an alternative. There is pretty good evidence that if someone is truly hypogonadal and they're going to remain that way um, for whatever reason, for example, perhaps they are on Suboxone or buprenorphine, it's not related to chronic dieting or whatnot. Um, not to get too much into the discussion of whether or not there's like exercise bulimia or whatnot, but um, an orthorexia, et cetera, et cetera. It's a kind of a whole nother discussion. But I guess the the short answer to that would be many cases of um, kind of like borderline nutrient deficiency causing a hypogonadism can be addressed via dietary changes, especially increasing the amount of fat. So a low fat diet that is isocaloric to a low carb diet, the low fat diet is much more likely to result in a deficient level of testosterone. So that's a high yield takeaway point that can benefit many people that are consuming few calories. Yeah, so focusing on, first of all, diet, making sure they're getting enough uh, fats in the diet. Do you think that, uh, are there large fluctuations in you know hormone levels? Let's say you were to draw testosterone from somebody in the morning versus like after like a vigorous CrossFit workout. Yeah, that's largely dependent on SHBG. So the younger you are, you tend to have lower SHBG and there is more fluctuation depending on time of day. There's actually no real reason to take a fasting testosterone. Fasting versus non-fasting, total T will be uh, quite similar. But um, at, like right after a vigorous workout, some workouts have a uh, effect of actually increasing testosterone. Um, now, unless you do those workouts all the time, there's probably not too much of a cumulative effect. And that effect is usually um, only over the course of like one to two hours. A lot of studies look at growth hormone and IGF-1 in this way. So there's a difference between central IGF-1. Um, that's an IGF-1 that is still synthesized in the liver, but due to uh, growth hormone secretion stimulating it in the liver and then peripheral IGF-1 where IGF-1 is released in the periphery. And that's largely what you study um, like after workouts and such. But um, it is still fine to check a testosterone, even if you're not fasting. And even if you have worked out recently, the main things to look at would be liver function tests, which are all often elevated after a hard workout and especially creatinine. So checking cystatin C, and you can also calculate an EGFR, which is a kidney filtration rate. Um, very common to see uh, people told that they have kidney disease, 
even though there's cystatin C and EGFR is normal calculated that way. Yeah, I'm really happy you brought that up because that's something that's really popular, or I should say kind of an issue in the CrossFit community where people go out and do hard CrossFit workouts and then they go in and they get their numbers checked and their liver enzymes might be up or their creatinine is up and they're not getting sort of the proper workout from their physician because they don't understand what to check and can end up thinking it's harmful to them when it actually isn't. Um, I hear people say a lot that they want to go on to testosterone replacement therapy for recovery of injuries or to help themselves recover better. And one common injury people cite is tendon injuries. And Amy and I were having this discussion the other day, uh, but it's my understanding at least that high levels of testosterone can actually impair tendon healing. Um, And so I do um, want to talk to you about what what are your thoughts on that approach using TRT for recovery and uh, does testosterone indeed um, actually lead to damage of the tendons? Yeah, testosterone in and of itself. So of course, when you take testosterone, you're really taking estrogen and DHT as well, um, unless you're on an aromatase inhibitor or a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. But um, testosterone in and of itself can impair. So the stronger the androgen, you're thinking about um, the androgen receptor gene transcription is upregulated, which often downregulates um, the effects of the estrogen receptor downstream. We do know that estrogen increases the synthesis of type three collagen and does seem to help with fibroblast um, moving into that area. But the rate limiting step for tendon injury is often not collagen synthesis. It's because it's disorganized collagen. So estrogen doesn't necessarily help with that. Um, That's why there are some trials. And if you think about it, it's just like anything else. If you're replacing a hormone, whether it's estrogen, whether it's testosterone, whether it's VEGF, which is technically a cytokine and not a hormone, whether it's VEGF via PRP or whether it's VEGF via peptides or whether it's various growth agonists, um, the lower level of that growth agonist or hormone you have, the better efficacy it will have. So if you're replacing VEGF in someone who is 90 years old that has uh, tendinos- like biceps tendinosis or whatnot, that is in general going to work better than someone who is 18 years old that has uh, plenty of VEGF circulating through to serum and they have a good uh, like leaky capillary response, they swell up. That's part of the benefit of healing, of course. So it really comes down to the individual, but in general, I do not think of TRT as a, like a potential healing mechanism. I would look at things like uh, other peptides or PRP much before just using TRT. All that being said, not again, not to get off on too much of a rabbit trail. In many, please do, please do. In many professional sports and in many sports leagues, an injury is a reason to utilize hormone therapy, even TRT. Right. So that can get really murky, right? And then, and I think that adds further to the confusion. When you say peptides, what other peptides would you be referring to? Yeah. So there's a lot of different classes. A peptide is of course, just a string of amino acids. Um, when I was talking to the, talking about the healing peptides, um, growth agonists are kind of one group. So you think of your peptides that are generally synthesized by the thymus. That's an organ that unless you have myasthenia gravis, um, you just have it as a kid, but those are like thymus and beta four. They chopped that up even more, made it into TB 500 because there's like an arbitrary amino acid limit for peptides. And then, um, and that is likely why some kids heal faster than adults. And there's BPC-157, which is an angiogenic peptide, not really a direct growth agonist, but 
um, that acts very similarly to the VEGF cytokine that we mentioned earlier. And then another one's GHK copper peptide that's made by the liver. Um, the levels drop over age. So again, probably a reason why in general, younger ages heal better. So these peptides probably work better as you age, but they also grow everything. So if you inject it, um, you know, they go systemic to some degree. So if you have a tumor, they will grow that tumor slightly. So that's why I don't recommend people take them contiguously. Right. So if an athlete um, or let's say a patient comes to you and they want to go on, you know, hormone replacement therapy or come asking about TRT, there's actually better options out there for healing of tendinous injuries and stuff than testosterone replacement. Correct. However, if they're kind of a, a case that is borderline, especially if they have very low estrogen, that very well may be the tipping point, if you will. The interesting, okay. other interesting thing um, about, so you mentioned that androgens can be anti-healing. Estrogen and androgens, the ratio of the two determines how your immune system will skew from Th1 to Th2 immunity. And there's some cytokines, for example, TGF-beta, that have a more activation if you have Th1 versus Th2 activated. So um, depending on if you happen to have the like uh, low estrogen hypogonadism, um, if you're a borderline case, then that may put someone over the edge. Um, the academic societies actually have pretty reasonable cutoffs. For example, I believe AUA uses a total testosterone of around 400, which I think is extremely uh, like perhaps even on the liberal side. Of course, it's patient dependent. So I think that a lot of those guidelines are very reasonable. Of note, um, most places um, don't even have a sensitive enough estradiol assay to order. So if you're expecting a very low estradiol or there is a low testosterone, for example, uh, most males or postmenopausal females, it needs to be an LCMS or even better, an equilibrium dialysis or ultrafiltration. So not the ECLIA, not the Roche immunoassay that's usually ordered because that has a very wide uh, standard error range. Going, uh, speaking to the effects of hormones on injury and injury rate, personal interests of mine, my uh, research interests is essentially looking at hormones and how the effects on injury rate and things like that. What do you? What are your thoughts about uh, the the effects of estrogen testosterone on things uh, on things like relaxin or lysol oxidase, which on one hand uh, you can have women tend to have uh, more ligament, ligamentous laxity, but at the same time those ligaments are not as uh, stiff a or slash strong, so you can have certain uh, injuries from having too much laxity, whereas you can have too, you can have injuries from having tendons that are too stiff. So, um, what are your thoughts about that? What have you read about it? Yeah, I'm certainly not in the camp that uh, for female HRT, replacing estrogen up to like simulating a pregnancy or ovulatory phase. So, I don't uh, like titrate HRT up to the level of premenopausal levels, I titrate to symptoms and also regarding like a, a benefit detriment ratio. Some people try to like simulate pregnancy, especially if they felt good, or they felt like they were very flexible because high estrogen states, and that's also a high relaxant state um, during the antepartum period. But um, the, I guess one of the confounding variables with that is a lot of people also start exercising more when they start HRT and tendon and ligament 
hypertrophy, not necessarily due to HRT. Uh, if, if you're, you know, if you're, especially if you're male and you're very hypogonadal, then that can help with both course muscle atrophy and tendon uh, hypertrophy. Um, it is going to take much longer. So my rule of thumb, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my rule of thumb is six to 12 weeks for significant muscle hypertrophy past the neurologic um, like gain phase and six plus months, but like at least six months for significant tendon hypertrophy. So uh, my theory is that that's one of the main reasons why you see a lot of injuries is because the the uh, the tendons haven't caught up to the muscle in terms of hypertrophy and strength and reorganization. Speaking to HRT and women, um, do you have, or what is your experience as far as uh, women who are coming off of OCPs? Because I've seen, I, I see many young girls being put on OCPs, very young age for many different conditions. Uh, some of them, I, I feel the use is somewhat liberal and they can be on it for years. Um, and what, what have you seen as far as uh, effects of that, but also transitioning uh, a woman off of OCPs or IUDs? Yeah. Um, as most people know, I see uh, OCPs and COCPs as exactly what they are, which is synthetic HRT. So that's not good or evil. It just is what it is, and you manage it very similarly to HRT. So um, if there is a symptom, whatever um, you're addressing, so um, you know, if it is not contraception or if there are other reasons other than contraception for which you're taking them, then at least attempting to understand the root cause of the problem and then doing a, a shared decision-making process with the patient. And of course, the patient's pediatric with their guardian as well um, about alternatives to that is important. That way it's not just, you know, you come in, you get put on uh, this synthetic HRT and then um, 10 or 15 years later, you come off of it and then you have anovulatory cycles and infertility. And it's like, oh, I have, I have PCOS. Um, it, it, I kind of see it from uh, I definitely see both ends of that happening. So that's why the shared decision-making process with a patient, which is um, just basically making sure they understand in layman's terms, um, uh, hopefully including the patient as well, even if they're 13, um, exactly what the risks and benefits could be. And building building off of that, I, with men and, and TRT, we, we talk a lot about, with, about performance enhancement and like mood stabilization and, and things like that. Whereas when we talk about HRT with women, it's almost ex exclusively about reproduction or menopause. Are there any uh, protocols that you have for women who want to just feel better, perform better at their sport? Uh, you know, things like that, that aren't necessarily related to fertility and reproduction. Yes, absolutely. Um, especially females who are already on HRT, even if it's synthetic HRT. So if you're on a synthetic estrogen and a synthetic progestogen, you should at least look at your androgenic signaling. And again, um, there's accurate way and inaccurate ways to measure testosterone in women. Equilibrium dialysis is the best way. It's kind of like the gold standard. So um, considering uh, adding an androgen in, 
even as weak as DHEA, and in some rare cases, up to as strong as oxandrolone is reasonable for women that are already on a protocol like that. But you just have to think about um, what the negative and positive of that could be. It is well known that uh, even women on bioidentical HRT, estrogen and progesterone, of which kind of like the, the general dosing regimen would be a topical estradiol, like a cream or a patch, and then an oral progesterone. Um, it is well known that the free androgen index and free androgens in general do drop pretty significantly. Um, but uh, yes, there is some general things to help, but just looking and assessing if the androgenic activity is low is important. For women that are on synthetic progestins, I think I recently posted this too. I just like to look at my huge chart of each synthetic progestogen. So basically um, what you're taking that is similar to progesterone, that's in a contraceptive pill. And you look, well, how strongly does this bind the androgen receptor? Does it activate it or inactivate it? How strongly does this bind the glucocorticoid receptor? How strongly does this affect um, your cortisol binding globulin? And um, it'll give you a good idea of which one might be best for each individual patient. Nice. And on this topic of, or the topic of sort of optimization, um, Amy and I talk a little bit about the difference between, you know, going in and um, you'll see some patients who want to come in and have a, you know, medicine for a particular disease they have, whether you're managing their diabetes or their blood pressure. And now we have a lot of off-label uses for medication that you might consider optimization. Um, and I kind of want to get your opinion on some. I know you put out a really good post about L-carnitine the other day, and you can take that both oral and injectable, and the oral has a low bioavailability. Um, but what are your thoughts on injectable L-carnitine for both like athletes or just the average person? It can be quite helpful. L-carnitine is a dipeptide, so it's kind of the smallest of the peptides. Methionine and lysine uh, put together, if I remember right. But it's also involved in what's called the carnitine palmitoyl coenzyme A uh, shuttle, which shuttles nutrients across the mitochondria mm -hmm. um, inside the cell. And there's a, there's both intracellular and serum carnitine levels. And you actually don't want your serum carnitine level too high. Fatty acids like PEA can help drive carnitine inside the cell. But in order to synthesize this, your body, of course, can take raw amino acids, for example, from protein that you eat and make the carnitine, but it's not very bioavailable. It's about 10% bioavailability. There was a recent study, I think it was only two weeks ago, that looked at, uh, I believe, diabetics or people who are very metabolically unhealthy that already have carotid plaque. And they gave one group L-carnitine and one group not L-carnitine. So if you take this supplement and, for example, you have diabetes, you're, you're very metabolically unhealthy, um, you already have insulin resistance, which I kind of consider bullet glue for plaque formation, then L-carnitine will likely drive even more nutrients um, into the mitochondria, but you're already in excess and it can lead to more plaque buildup. Similar to how if you're metabolically unhealthy, eating a lot of red meat can lead to more plaque buildup. It also can convert to TMAO in the gut. That has a lot to do with your gut microbiome. But that being said, it can increase your androgen receptor density, and it can also help with the nutrient partitioning effect. So um, keep more of your energy and nutrients in the cell where they can be used rather than in the bloodstream. 
Nice. And so would that be something that people could use it as an adjunct if they're already on, like, let's say TRT to increase the effectiveness of the dose they're taking? Yes. Yep. Um, L-carnitine also, obviously, when you're injecting it, that's sterile. That's something that is ideally that should be got from a compounding pharmacy and not a supplement website. Right. You can, and these are medications you can obtain from a physician. Yes. Um, how about uh, low-dose Cialis? That's a big one right now that I hear a lot about. Have you uh, had any experience using that with patients? Or Yeah, um, low-dose Cialis, um, which is also known as Tadalafil, I would say is one of my favorite medications. Um, as age increases, uh, an enzyme called phosphodiesterase, specifically uh, phosphodiesterase E5, will increase. So you can somewhat make the case that as age increases, bringing that enzyme back down with a phosphodiesterase inhibitor like Tadalafil is just kind of bringing you to the physiologic range that can help with things like androgen receptor density, preventing in tissue ischemia. There are studies about people having strokes or mini strokes and um, how perhaps uh, being on Tadalafil time can help with recovery because there's less in tissue um, hypoxia. So there's a lot of different benefits. One of the most niche ones, I guess, is um, there's some studies looking at episodes of having to urinate at night and it can cut those episodes in up to half. So if someone wow. gets like twice to urinate at night, that can have a pretty deleterious effect on sleep. So just going from two episodes to one episode can, um, improve sleep. And then that's probably going to improve overall health, uh, more than any of its other benefits. Nice. And that's something that, um, I want to say it, it, the dose uses like five milligrams, yeah, usually 2.5 or 5 milligrams. 10 and 20 are considered high dose. 2.5 and 5 are considered low dose, which are occasionally prescribed for hypertension as well. So making sure you don't have low blood pressure or if a patient has POTS, then doing some shared decision-making with them. Um, but a lot of the side effects of Tadalafil are dose-dependent. So 2.5 and 5 are generally very well tolerated. Nice. All right, last one I got for you. How about um, NAD infusions? Yeah, NAD infusions can certainly be helpful. Um, there's also an IONTOFOR technology where you can uptake some from a patch. I think that's highly dependent on uh, person to person and skin you put it on and such. But NAD is a uh, sequela of niacin, which is vitamin B3, I believe. Niacin converts to something called NR, nicotinamide riboside. NR converts to NMN, which is nicotinamide mononucleotide, which is recently in the news because there's a drug company trying to patent beta NMN. But it'll probably end up being like NAC, where um, NAC is able to be prescribed. And I do prescribe it from a pharmacy, but it's also a supplement. So it's kind of in that special category. But anyway, NMN converts to NAD+. And then uh, with the help of coenzyme Q10 or CoQ10, NAD plus converts to ATP. So it's an energy precursor. I think of it kind of similarly as a very weak growth hormone since it um, can improve cell turnover and it can also improve mitochondrial function. So in some niche cases, for example, um, fertility in the aging female, there is great data but unfortunately it's on mice and rats. Mice and rats have all the side effects and all the, the good effects as well. But I have seen some cases of it um, being helpful in those cases, much like a lot of uh, females 
getting IVF are put on off-label on uh, growth hormone or GHRPs. Um, occasionally, NAD plus can be helpful for it. Also, in uh, states of what's called uh, NAD plus depletion myalgia, it definitely helps, but niacin also helps. And then it may lower lipoprotein little a if people are familiar with that. And then also it just helps people feel better after they've been sick. So a lot of people will use it from time to time after illness. That being said, uh, if you inject it not through an IV, so if you do it like IM, it will kind of cause what people call a chest rush, where they might feel like they're having a, um, too much chest pressure. So it's very important to counsel patients um, if that is something that is going to be prescribed. Oh, wow. I didn't know about that. That's uh, that's important to know. But okay, that's great. Um, now, one thing you brought up um, earlier that I think we should really emphasize is a lot of these like medications or, you know, supplements are available from these like off-label sort of compounding pharmacies online. And that's not necessarily safe for people to obtain, even though it can be a gray area where, you know, it may or may not be legal to go online and purchase it. You have no idea what you're injecting into your body. And there's a proper way to do it because there are physicians out there that are prescribing these and getting them from reputable pharmacies. So if you're listening or have patients coming through, do not allow them to just obtain these things from the internets. That is great advice across the board for everything. <laughs> yes. In addition to you know the more medical side of it, um, one of the pillars of, of health that you have discussed it involves the spiritual side. And uh, what would be your advice for someone to kind of explore that who isn't necessarily particularly religious, um, but you know, still there's still that aspect of the human experience. So what are what are tools that you recommend for that? Yeah, that's a great question because, um, and I don't consider myself particularly religious. As I mentioned, I do believe in God. I'm a Christian. But the way I see that is it's your uh, metaphysical being past just your mental health. So it's, it's the why you're here. There's something called Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And at the bottom is your basic physical and social needs. And at the top is something called self-actualization. And uh, fortunately, uh, most people in developed countries concentrate most on that self-actualization point of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And that's really what your uh, spiritual health pillar is, um, deciding why you're here and what your purpose is. In addition to that, and this kind of overlaps with the stress pillar, but things like prayer and meditation or even different types of yoga can be good things to help you kind of realize what um, you decide or what you think it is inevitable that your purpose in life may be. I think as um, we could probably be in, uh, we could probably concur that during medical school and residency, seeing people in their end of life care or during the comfort care time, there is a heavy emphasis, um, even from people who have not been spiritual previously on their spiritual and metaphysical health. And, and building on that, as far as being a, a physician, how do you, or how have you in the past addressed uh, things like burnout, you know, self-care and, and when you're taking care of other people, how, what are some, some tools that you recommend for that? Yeah. Um, 
just like if you prescribe a medication or, um, you know, a different diet or a different exercise, um, thinking about what the patient is most likely to benefit from. For example, sometimes I'll do a body scan with the patient, which is a basic type of meditation, or I'll even describe a raisin meditation. Sometimes I'll recommend a book if the patient also happens to be in healthcare or certainly a healthcare provider. Um, we'll chat about uh, various books that I've read. For example, Heal Thyself from uh, Sacco Santorelli, which is written kind of with the healthcare provider in mind for self-care. And um, just find something that um, I think that they will succeed with best. For example, sometimes I pray with patients. And there's also patients that I know for sure I will never pray with that patient because um, it would probably harm the patient-physician rapport. So it's certainly case by case. What are your best strategies as far as motivating patients to do things that maybe maybe they're not convinced that they should do, um, you know, or or forming these habits that are, you know, these health healthy habits that it, you know, I see quite a bit in in my practice. Sometimes people aren't the most motivated to lose weight and uh, you know go exercise and do things like that. So, um, how do you kind of tap into that with the patient? Like, what are some recommendations you have? Mm -hmm. I think I've mentioned shared decision-making multiple times, um, but basically that's coming up with the decision together. Another term that I'll try to define as best as possible is motivational interviewing. So um, basically motivational interviewing is where you listen as much as possible to the patient and you use open-ended questions that do not direct the patient to a specific end goal. That way you get an accurate assessment of where their baseline is. Um, I do think that they're doing a better and better job through medical education of emphasizing these two things. Sometimes it does lead to confusion. I remember my grandparents went in and had um, their doctor moved or retired and they had a, a, a doctor that was newly out of residency and they were confused because they were given three different options of what they could do and the pros and cons between each. And they were asking about, well, why is this? And what happened is they essentially did motivational interviewing and my grandparents didn't really know what they wanted to do, um, but they were given the pros and the cons. And I think that it's a good way to motivate them because they went home and they thought about it. They weren't ready to make a decision or to commit the first time. And, and then after thinking about it more, they decided on an option and then they had another discussion which kind of confirmed or solidified it. I, yeah, I do find that with older patients, often I'll say like, you know, here's the pros and cons of getting this injection. We could do it if you want to do it. Uh, what do you, what would you like to do? And then they say, I don't know. You're the doctor. You tell me. So I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, but I do find with older people that that can be somewhat uh, confusing when they're given an option. <laughs> yes, definitely see that a lot. Um, and I'm sure that you both encounter this in your practices as well is that there's definitely a selection bias, which basically means if you're a type of doctor or if you're known to do certain things, the patients that show up at your clinic will be more likely to one, have related pathologies or questions, but also two, more likely to want a treatment or want to do something that they know um, you are an advocate of. For example, if you have a lifestyle medicine clinic, then you're much more likely to have a patient population 
that is willing to make more lifestyle changes and more motivated too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one thing that, um, you know, Amy and I, we do a good amount of procedures. And I think that can be a barrier is that a lot of times you have one of two patients, right? You get the patient who comes to you super motivated to do therapy and, and learn and try to get better that way. And then the other one that just wants, you know, an injection and to get on with their life. And it can be hard to kind of walk people back from that or once they've had that experience before. Um, with the model that you use, the direct primary care model, um, I know that sort of is allows you to spend more time with the patients, right? Because we're talking about doing things like motivational interviewing, shared decision making. And one big, uh, I think, complaint people have when they go to the doctor is they feel like it's just a mill. They're in and out, in and out. So have you found that to be the DPC model to be particularly beneficial for that? I do think the DPC model is great for that. There are some limitations with the DPC model. Um, it can be uh, hard to turn it into a profitable business. And I've seen uh, with the business that my dad helped run and has, has been the medical director of, et cetera, um, as they got larger and larger and there was more and more providers providing primary care, not necessarily direct primary care, um, because it is hard to make money when you don't make money as a business and there's a recession or whatnot, then often that causes you to having to sell out to a huge hospital chain. And then you lose the ability to provide low cost care. Then you might lose the ability to um, like comp office visits and whatnot. So I definitely noticed that uh, basically my clinic has three models, the concierge model, the individualized medicine model, which is like hormones, fertility, aesthetics, and functional medicine, and the DPC model. The DPC model is certainly likely to make zero money or perhaps even lose money. So I look at it as more of like a public health benefit, similar to how I did um, during my time volunteering at the FQ at the safety net clinic. Perhaps, and hopefully that will change in the future, but it is difficult. Um, for people to, especially people that have insurance to pay for the DPC model, health sharing could change that. So there's a lot of different Christian health sharing organizations. There's also one called Zion Health Share, especially for people without pre-existing conditions or without too many of them. That can be a very beneficial way to get direct primary care. And it also benefits um, the DPC because people are willing to, they have they don't have a premium to pay regular insurance. So they're more willing to put that towards direct primary care. Can you elaborate on how those branches of your business, how they work as far as payment and like subscription or however, however you run that? Yeah, definitely. So the individualized medicine clinic, which is kind of like a, think of it as a combination of a health optimization clinic, a cancer prevention clinic, a neurodegenerative disease prevention clinic, and a functional medicine clinic. That is a subscription, usually every six months, uh, sometimes every year. Some people really want monthly, so we also have an option for that. And with that, the monthly fee, uh, all the visits are, the visits are free and included up to a certain point. But your fee is similar to the Cleveland Clinic model. So Cleveland Clinic now charges up to $50 per message per patient. So depending on which provider you sign up with, um, you might be paying, um, you know, let's say 
would it be 550 every three months or so. And that includes all of your messages. So it's like a wristband to where you have unlimited messages to the clinic. And then we answer them just like you would message any other clinic. Office staff answers the questions they can. Uh, I have a PharmD that works with me. So a lot of patients are on sub many supplements and medications. And both of those, of course, um, interact with the body, with pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics. And then we answer the questions that providers need to answer as well. So that's the way that we see it. And then um, no visit co-pays or whatnot. Um, that way it removes the barrier to care. Once you sign up, you get um, essentially wholesale prices on supplements. We don't make any money off medications like some clinics do. And then um, we don't make, uh, you know, basically everything is included once you've paid that price that eliminates the barrier to care because otherwise patients are either incentivized not to make an office visit because they're scared of a copay or in the case of Cleveland Clinic, they're incentivized not to message their provider because it's a per occurrence messaging fee. Yeah, I think that all-inclusive model, it, and when you do it that way, it, the way that it seems to me at least is you'll have certain patients who probably have higher needs than others. So then it works out to for the provider as well to be able to take the time to address the more complex patients and then other ones that have sort of straightforward needs are just able to come in, get the kind of stuff that they want or need as well. Yep. Um, um, what advice would you have to like a new provider coming out? Let's say that is interested in doing what you've been doing. Let's say they've found your videos online or, you know, and they see, and they're like, I'm really interested in this stuff, but they're just graduating, like, let's say residency and they have no idea where to start. Yeah. The first is just being a lifelong learner. So if they're listening to this podcast or if they're following um, like other various podcasts and models, that's certainly a good step. But seeking out what they're most interested in and um, finding good evidence-based learning platforms. So it's always good to think about the thesis and the antithesis. Just because the thesis isn't working perfectly well does not mean that the antithesis is true. So um, using critical thinking skills and um, being a self-directed learner across many different platforms, not just finding one source. So unfortunately, it's not as simple as I want to do functional medicine, do all the IFM criteria. That's, that's not a bad start. It's not necessarily bad, but it's certainly not that simple. Um, podcasts are very helpful as well. Um, the Peter Atia podcast, my roommates and I were always huge fans of. Um, so there are certainly a lot of physicians that are interested. And I do get messages all the time about, you know, like how to do... Um, individualized medicine and how to take care of people across many different platforms. Um, part of it is just the decision that people make in med school. So I, there are so many instances and so many people that very strongly advise me not to go to family medicine residency because it would be a waste or whatnot, or just because uh, that's not what you should do. You won't make the most amount of money there. There's a, a million different reasons, but even in the Midwest where primary care is supposedly emphasized, and somewhat sort of subsidized, um, there's definitely a very heavy bias against it. So it, it's a problem that I don't know the answer to, but it is not ideal to, in general, have your least qualified applicants going to the most wide spectrum specialties like internal medicine and family medicine. 
Yeah, there's several inherent issues in our system like that. And I think people can go along down a path that they might not even necessarily want to just because they think they should do a certain thing and they don't really understand and it's not taught to you. I guess it's there's really not a lot of training on being an entrepreneur in general, you know, when you're in medical training and when you get out, how you're going to do that or what you can even do with a medical degree aside from, you know, the traditional paths that people take. Um, are you now, are you able to see patients in multiple states for people out there that are listening that are not physicians who are wondering, like, how can they get in touch with you? Do you see patients over telemedicine and what states could you kind of explain how that works? Yeah. In-person medicine is, um, always preferred, but depending on the state, some have easier telemedicine laws. Um, there's an inter interstate medical license commission that uh, before too long, all 50 states will, should be part of. So um, a lot of the barriers to care are being eliminated. The, the way to think about telemedicine, and I actually uh, published in the MSL journal an article about um, the benefits and detriments of telemedicine, pitfalls and how it helps. But telemedicine is never going to be optimal. But when you have a telemedicine appointment, it is often an appointment that you would not have otherwise. So these are people that are underserved. Perhaps they live in very rural areas. Um, ideally, everybody comes in and sees you um, hopefully twice a year, maybe once a year. You know, that kind of depends on the amount. But um, telemedicine in between can be very patient-centered because that patient doesn't have to, you know, drive or fly two hours to see you and then wait in the waiting room for an hour and then wait in the room for 20 minutes and then finally see you for 30 minutes and then travel all the way back. So. Um, that's that kind of hopefully that summarizes the debate of because if you mentioned that you say telemedicine, there will be people that say telemedicine is not good medicine. You need to do a physical exam and listen to them. Also, right, right. really, you should be doing point of care ultrasound. But hopefully that kind of summarizes uh, that. Yeah. And one thing you mentioned earlier about the med share. So if you have a med share, I think like Sidera is another really popular one. Um, you can use like even the individualized medicine protocol you're using because it treats by condition. So, and you could actually fly out to see any physician you want and it doesn't matter because there's no insurance barrier there. So for people that are utilizing med shares, one of the big benefits is the flexibility. Yeah, it is a huge benefit and that will only be more and more common. So my advice to most people, if there's not too many pre-existing conditions, find a med share that's right for you and just stay on it indefinitely. Agree. All right. So Dr. Gillette, thank you. I mean, this has been great. Um, and we, I'll link your website. I know you have website, Instagram, anywhere else people can find you. Instagram is probably my main base, Kyle Gillette MD, Gillette Health on all other platforms. Um, I often get questions about labs. At some point soon, I will list all of my recommended lab panels, which you're happy to try to take to your PCP to see if insurance will cover some of it. Maybe. But um, at some point, I will list all of those on my website as well. Great. All right. Well, thanks for coming out. That would on. be helpful. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you, guys.